Hello, everybody, and welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. This is Peter Ravella, the co-host of the show. And this is Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host. Tyler, there is a ton going on in the U.S. port system. Indeed. We read about it every day in the news, the backlog of shipping and containers and port backlog all around the U.S., particularly in Southern California, Tyler. Oh, it's, I, I, you know, I think famously the busiest port port of long beach in california yeah long beach, uh, and LA. when that thing gets congested boy those ships are out there it makes for a compelling aerial shot with you know i, I think there's over 100 ships out there at, t- at one point I, I think so currently probably i've been reading recently in coastal news today i think there were about 40 uh in the log but another 40 further offshore that hadn't entered the queue officially but one of the huge issues on the American shoreline, and we're going to be talking to a great port director uh, about this issue and the operations of a small Southern California port, the port of Wainimi, Tyler, in Ventura County. Ventura County, near and dear to uh, our heart, our podcast. We, we have done quite a bit in Ventura County, we confess, but uh, the county has a lot to offer. And uh, we actually did a show previously on Ventura Harbor, you'll recall, on uh, uh, offshore aquaculture. That is right up the coast. And if you were to go just a little bit further south down the coast, uh, you would run into the port of Huaynimi, which I've always known was there, but have shockingly not really learned that much about it. So I'm really looking forward today to remedying that and getting to know what this port is all about. Well, it's a great opportunity to learn what's happening in ports around the country, but in particular in Southern California. Joining us on the podcast today, Tyler, is the executive director, the CEO and the port director of the Port of Wainimi, Kristen Dikas. And Kristen has been at the port since uh, 2012, I believe. We're going to learn about her background in history at the port and uh, what's going on in this amazing Southern California port. Stick around, ladies and gentlemen. We're going to get real smart on what's going on at ports. But first, a quick word from our sponsors. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by LJA Engineering. With 28 offices along the Gulf Coast, the folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numerical modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. Find them at lja.com. And be sure to subscribe to the Coastal News Today Daily Blast newsletter at coastalnewstoday.com for daily updates on the events and news that shape the coastal discussion. Want to support the discussion and promote your company? We have sponsorship packages available now. Email me to learn more at chloe at coastalnewstoday.com. That's C-H-L-O-E at coastalnewstoday.com. Hope to hear from you and enjoy the show. Well, thank you very much, Kristen Dikas, for joining us on the American Shoreline podcast. Appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule to talk to our listeners. Hey, it's great to be here today. Thanks for having me. Well, uh, if you wouldn't mind, Kristen, and one of the things we like to do is uh, we're introducing an audience to uh, an activity, issue, or topic on the American Shoreline is to get to know the people we're, we're speaking with. Can you share with us a little bit about your background and how you came to be the CEO and the director at the Port of Wainimi? Sure, sure I can. I, I have sort of a, a fun story. You don't really uh, study ports necessarily when I came into the industry there was really no academia trail to get there but anecdotally my great um, excuse me my grandmother was born in Norway and her uh, great 
granddad was, or her grandfather was the harbor master of Bergen, Norway, and he had a son that sailed uh, ships uh, in Norway and, and eventually took my grandmother and himself and moved to Philadelphia and worked for a company called United Fruit and sailed ships there. And um, today, uh, United Fruit is also known as Chiquita, and it's one of our largest uh, customers here at Port Winnemi. So I feel in some weird way, my ancestry found, <laughs> led me into this industry. Small but world. Um, kind of fun story there. But no, technically, I actually um, went to college at the University of Vermont, and I studied economics, and that's where I met my future husband. And after that experience, I went on and I studied environmental policy law at the University of Denver, hmm. uh, mountain states, nothing to do with coastal states, and then uh, found my way uh, back to Massachusetts, where my husband's from, that I met at UVM, and uh, ended up staying there and getting married. And my first job was actually with the Department of Environmental Protection for the state of Massachusetts, oh. working in uh, green fleet programs and alternative fuel programs. Um, and. I found that it was getting, I, as much as I enjoyed the work, I lived in a town called Wareham, which is at the mouth of Ca uh, Cape Cod, and I was commuting up to Boston, and the, it's kind of like commuting from Port of Winnemi into LA Long Beach. It's a, quite a strain in terms of the traffic and whatnot. And so I ended up finding a job with something called the Governor's Seaport Council, and the governor at the time had a satellite office in a community named Fairhaven, which neighbors Wareham, and I, I got my feet in the door in the maritime industry there, and we had a $300 million bond bill to um, invest in the deep water ports of the Commonwealth. So that's where I got my feet wet and I worked there for about six years and then I was uh, a rather young woman and got the opportunity from the uh, mayor of New Bedford to become the port director of the port of New Bedford in Massachusetts where I was there for six years and after that I, I put my name in the hat for the job out here and in 2012 um, was fortunately awarded the position. So that's how I found my way to California and the port of Winnie. Uh, Kristen, I, I really, I need to ask you, uh, what a port director does, but I, I do, I feel compelled to go back to this, uh, decision, uh, from studying economics to environmental law. I'm yeah. very interested in that swirl that you did there. What, what prompted you to go in that direction? Well, it's a great question. You know, I, I um, it's interesting. Bernie Sanders was the mayor at the time when I was at the University of Vermont. And in studying economics, I always believed that economics is is an important as environment, right? But you got to find the invalid, uh, the balance, like economic development's not a bad word, but you also have to move that in a sustainable way. And one of my first experiences actually when I was an econ major was um, I, I had the opportunity to work for the director of planning under uh, Bernie Sanders. And I worked to, uh, it was an internship when one of my inc uh, econ classes, and it was actually paid, I had a paid internship and I, I got credit for it. And I worked with some peers and we um, came up with a project uh, with the university and with the city to buy re recycled paper, because at that time recycled paper was more expensive than regular paper. But if you did bulk purchasing, you could get the the cost of paper down that it became affordable for the university and for the city. And so I was a part of that project with the mm. director of planning at the time. And that's where I sort of realized, wow, I really like environmental work and I appreciate economics. And so when I go on to study something further, I, I want to focus on this environmental play. And I feel that still in my DNA today, as I feel that 
economic and, and social justice and good jobs is really important, um, but you need to make sure that you're creating a, a footprint that is environmentally sustainable as well. 100% agree with that. that It's all about the balance between the greens, the green of the environment and the green of the cash, uh, mm-hmm. finding that right mix. Uh, what a great right shade ba- of green. That's right. A, a great background. Uh, Kristen uh, from New Bedford, Massachusetts, as a port director in the Governor's Seaport Council in Vermont. Uh, this area of work uh, in ports, Tyler, is one of the places where the conflict or the uh, balance of economic interests and environmental protection is really at play in almost everything that ports do. Uh, There are major infrastructure pieces with significant impact. Moving tons and tons of cargo means lots of fuel uh, and lots of issues. how has your background in environmental law and at small ports on the East Coast uh, really uh, affected or influenced your perspective as the director at the Port of Wainimi? Well, I think I would say that it's just given me a perspective to make it a priority in the business portfolio. Um, it's it's become it's it's something that it's part of every conversation that we have as we develop infrastructure. It can't just be about infrastructure. How can we make sure it's as green as sustainable infrastructure as possible? So it's sort of influenced, I think, the decision-making. I think you're finding this happen at a lot of ports around the country because it is such a hot topic and it is so important. And there's a lot of discussion around climate change and, and uh, global warming. And I think every business uh, has to do its part to make sure that we're minimizing the footprints that we have in terms and, and, and the uh, pollution impacts. Definitely. And I love that it's a part of everything. I think that's absolutely the next evolution in the way that we're going to be thinking about this this new economy that they're talking about, Peter, is that we we, we can no longer afford to allow these externalities to just exist. Uh, it, it They end up actually costing money in the long run. And, and potentially can wipe us out. <laughs> but uh, I, I want to return to that other question. So port director, uh, yeah. um, you know, I know more than most people do about what goes on behind those big fences um, at ports. But uh, and I know it's complicated. It involves big ships. Peter, you alluded to it. Math, you know, huge machines, tons of cargo of all different types, lots of sorting, tons of logistics and organization. Um, but you you are, you're running the show. So uh, can you tell us uh, how you do that? How do you structure the port and what, what's going through your mind? So I guess if you're asking specific to what a port director does, well, we run ports and what's involved in that um, is wearing a multitude of hats. And I would say that every day is really a different type of day. Right. But one big pillar of what we do, of course, is commerce and it's international trade and it's moving goods in and out of our country. So here at Port Winnemi, by way of example, we import 5 billion bananas on an annual basis that um, goes into 15 different states in our country. So a very nutritious food source. And then here in California, which is home to a huge agricultural community, we export a lot of agricultural goods out of our county and, and, and our region into global markets. So that's a tremendous part of what we do. And of course, that economic commerce creates 
important jobs for about 3 million people in California are employed because of the ports that are here. Here in Ventura County, we employ upwards of 15,000 folks in trade-related jobs. Um, and are the fourth largest employer in our county. So that's a big piece of what we do is kind of making sure those customers are happy, right? And that commerce is coming both ways for the import and export side of the house. Another big piece of what we do is infrastructure, right? We need to make sure that we have the assets to support that trade. And that goes back into that other pillar of environment. So make sure that those assets are green and sustainable and you're minimizing your footprint and working with your other good movement stakeholders, for instance, the trucking industry, the locomotive industry, to make sure that you're marrying up and working together to have green operations as possible. So environment's a huge focus of what we do. Um, Innovation is another big part of what port directors need to consider in terms of having the best in tech, right? How we track data around goods coming into our ports and know where, where containers are um, and uh, where other commodities are coming through so you can bill your customers and you can make sure you have a fluid operation, you know, everything big tech here in the port, and we can talk about a little labor. We're a tech incubator and we have a partnership with the Navy among others in the economic development arena where we um, have uh, developed uh, different types of tech to be used in the maritime and the military domain. We're a shared harbor with the base. So that's exciting uh, thing that we have going on here. And then of course, and, and not limited to is community and the partnerships that you have out in the fabric of your community and good strong relationships. We've been doing a lot of community drives here in Wanimi during COVID to help with the pandemic and some of the needs. We've stood up vaccination, uh, not vaccination tents, but testing tents and those sorts of things and helping our community through distribution of products like the bananas that come through here through community drives about one of our customers, Delmonte, has contributed uh, a million pounds of produce to um, uh, those in need in our community. So there's a lot of different hats and there's no day that's the same, I'll tell you, Tyler and Peter. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a mix and it's very rewarding work, um, I, I would say. I really enjoy being part of this industry. It, it's a fascinating industry and something I think uh, most Americans don't have a, a real familiarity uh, beyond the notion of the ships coming in and being unloaded and loaded. Uh, it's a little mysterious, the port community. I think uh, an insular world, a very subculture on the American shoreline. Uh, you serve as the president of the California Association of Port Authorities and have served also as the chair of the American Association of Port Authorities. So in the professional community, I've taken a leadership role in these key organizations. Um, what is the topics of most uh, concern or the hottest topics in the world of port associations, either in California or around the United States? Well, there's, you know, kind of, it's interesting when you go into those different types of associations, they're also they're networking opportunities, right, to exchange best practices, or if you're up against a challenge, how is that particular port addressed it, you can learn from another particular port. But I think when there's some sort of crisis, like a supply chain crisis, you know, we'll all share um, in how to address that crisis. There's been other things that have been big, you know, these are universal issues usually we discuss in those forums, and sometimes they're around port security. They will be around um, optimizing the goods movement industry in partnerships with, say, the trucking industry, among others. Um, 
if there's a, a regulatory development in Washington, how do we join forces to make sure we influence that policy so that it's strategic for the universe supports? On a particular note, there's something called the harbor maintenance tax. There's a 0.125% tax on all the imports that come into this country. That tax is deposited into an account in Washington and it goes back into the ports to um, be used for uh, maintenance dredging, which means we got to make sure the water is the right depth for the ships to come in and you either have to deepen ports or you have to maintain the depth of those ports. And there is a lot of controversy at one point amongst the ports as to uh, access to that funding because you have certain ports that are donor ports give more than they receive and other ports that take more than they give in, right? And so those types of mm. conversations come up. And then there was a situation where a lot of that money was just getting, was staying in Washington and only half of it was going back out to the ports. So we had this univer universal voice on, yeah, we should get all of the money back into the ports because the tax on the ports, but then how do you divvy it up? So right. those types of examples of what you might do in those forums. But well, today it's the supply chain. <laughs> well, let's talk, I, 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 we, I definitely want to talk about the supply chain, but before we, we leave the federal spending side, um, of course, the biggest news of the fall in, in infrastructure was the passage of the infrastructure bill in Congress and signed by the president. I think it's $1.2 trillion. There's an additional Build Back Better uh, proposal that will also move money into infrastructure, including ports. Um, it seems, uh, Kristen, that we are at, at, in a position now nationally to be making some of the biggest investments ever in ports around the American shoreline. Um, are you confident about the funding that has been uh, aligned for ports around America and about the capacity of our institutions to deploy those funds effectively. Uh, to talk to us about the infrastructure bill and what you see coming down the line. I guess I don't, I won't speak to the process of necessarily how it will get out there, but I will say this, that I'm really excited uh, about the Infrastructure Act. Um, it's actually an act now. And historically, the ports have always had to compete with other modes um, in infrastructure bills. Um, there were programs out there like uh, transportation improvement grants, and they have they have buzzwords, build, raise, tiger. But mm -hmm. those fundings in previous um, acts were always um, to be shared across all goods movements. So, you know, we're competing with railroads, we're competing with, the, with highways and roads. And what's unique to this bill and the ports are really excited about is that there's a 2.5 billion allocation. I think it's about 450 million a year is dedicated to the port uh, complexes in our country. And so um, I think we'll, um, be very excited. I mean, formerly in some of these tiger grants, there's 500 million available for all modes. So now we're going to be competing against each other for 450 million a year. So I think it's going to become a much more competitive process for the ports to access this funding. And we really do, as you can see, for the first time, there's all this visibility on the, on the supply chain. We've often, and I won't be shy about this, we really have been a stepchild in public policy in terms of the presence of ports and goods movement we're sort of like freight's not sexy right it's just not out there um you don't see it so it, you don't touch and feel it but now with these kinds of situations in the supply chain all of a sudden ports all eyes on ports right 
So um, getting this sort of visibility and having the opportunity to go after real funding, I think is really exciting for the port industry. And I think it's going to really help our country in terms of having better and more efficient operations to move freight. I, I uh, second that. I'm really thrilled that they passed it. And we've, uh, Peter, you know, I produce a lot of pods here on ASPN. So I I hear hundreds of conversations uh, each year about the American shoreline. I've heard a lot of them this year about uh, the supply chain issues. And I've heard a lot of them about uh, from port directors and uh, people in D.C. who lobby on behalf of ports who have been uh, vocally supporting that bill. So I, I know that, uh, that it's supported in that community, Kristen, but I am wondering a little bit about, you know, on there, that's kind of a two-sided coin, it seems to me, because on the one hand, um, you're right, like it has been a shadow thing on the American shoreline in particular. I, I referenced earlier that big fence um, and, you know, a big stack of containers or whatever you drive past on the freeway Famously in uh, Oakland, California, you drive past, you see those big cranes that remind you of Star Wars. And that's about it. I mean, to interpret what's happening, the complexity of what's happening in such an industrial space for the person who's looking at it from the outside, it's almost design. I mean, I, I would argue that it's almost intended to be our whole supply chain is almost intended to be not seen and that you go to the store and the things are the, the shelves are stocked and you don't you're not supposed to wonder did this where did the, where in the world did this come from and how did it get here and i do hope that in this post covid world just generally in our culture that we would remedy that a little bit and become a little bit more aware of how our broader supply chain works because one of the things that i've been hearing from port people uh, as much as we've been hearing how great this infrastructure bill is, Peter, is that the supply chain problem is not strictly a port problem, that the whole it's a chain. It's a chain. Hence the supply chain. But yeah. the, I shouldn't be talking about this. Kristen, would you give us uh, your uh, your spiel on uh, the supply chain backlog? Sure. When it works, it works, right? No one's worried. So, but you know, when it doesn't work, wow, look what happens. So yeah, if you, I I guess to just give some perspective, you know, with the the COVID implications, no one really put in the crystal ball, whatever could have happened. And what did happen is e-commerce is up 39%. And what does that mean? That means a lot of cargo. And most of it's coming out of Asia. And in fact, if you looked at the, the vessel count outside China, I think at some points it's been upward of 250 vessels sitting there waiting to get import boxes and empties back into the system. Um, and then all at once loaded, about uh, you know 40% of the nation's uh, goods comes through the port of LA and Long Beach. So you're trying to take you know, uh, an eight line highway and put it through a straw, I think is some of the, the analogies have been used in terms of trying to get the cargo into this country. And then it's coupled and compounded with other situation that, you know, you're going to have this backlog of ships um, because not only are they just coming here, you have the other elements of the supply chain all clogged. So the warehouses are full. There's shortages of truckers and equipment such as chassis to get them. Um, and then the locomotives or, or, or the railroads in our country are so full that they're embargoing cargo, meaning they're not taking bookings. And so that you're finding that, you know, you have 
the whole system's broken, but all eyes on ports just because you see the ships for the first time, 80, as you mentioned, running down the coast. And there are actually more when you factor in the tanker ships and the other types of ships that also are having trouble getting their product into the market. It's not a bad uh, it's not a bad place to begin the, to tell the story, to be honest with you, because it is a dramatic place mm-hmm. in the supply chain. Mm-hmm. But uh, by no means is the whole chain. Sorry to interrupt, but I... I you know, the no, first thing cool. you do when you uh, when you have a USB port on your mm-hmm. computer that doesn't work is you blow on the you blow on the port. <laughs> you go straight to the port. You don't you don't like look at the cable. That's the next step. But anyway, sorry to interrupt That's you, Kristen. It's all good. So, so what also has been a, and, you know, kind of fascinating about this and just to back up a little bit pre covid, um, the ocean carriers um we're starting to build these huge ships, if you recall. They were yes. major ships. They, you know, they were widening the Panama Canal, and then the ships are getting so big that they wouldn't even fit through the Panama Canal. Panama Canal. And so what was happening is that you were getting so much capacity out in the ocean carrier business that they had to compete with each other. They would keep bringing their prices down and their prices down, and then they were sharing slots on vessels to try and make it more competitive. Long story short, all these huh. ocean carriers are losing tons of money. All of a sudden, COVID hits. There's all of this insurgence of demand and these ocean carriers now are making ton of money off all these import boxes right yep so a container an import container typically would have run you know before covid a you know ocean carrier would make what twenty five hundred dollars a container now i'm hearing numbers as crazy as eighteen thousand dollars a container so all of these vessels are running back to asia to get their import boxes and i've heard that some of these companies have made more in the last six months than they've made in the last 11 years. But there's another trickle effect to that. Not only are you putting more and more vessels into this whole um, import problem, um, the exporter is getting left behind. So the import, you know, the ocean carrier doesn't want to wait for an export box that they're going to make like $3,000 if they can race back to Asia and get another one. So you're finding this whole problem now where these exporters, poor exporters boxes are just getting stranded at the ports and they have to pay all this high demerge. And for us, you know, we can get into what, what Wanimi has been doing, but we're seeing a lot of this import business come in now through our port. And I'm kind of excited to say we just had a study or a report come out by the PMSA that suggested that Port Wanimi is now making up 1.7% for a smaller port. That's quite a bit of all the export trade, making us the sixth largest in the nation for yes, containers. Yeah, huge. So, yeah, so it's, you're seeing that's a whole nother ripple effect of this is that the, the, the exporter is having a lot of trouble getting its product out. Okay. Look, you've mentioned a couple of factors, and I want to <clears throat> I want to go a little bit further down the line. Uh, you've mentioned that there's been an increased demand because of COVID, people buying more and more products online, so just uh, greater demand for imported goods from uh, Asia, particularly China, as being one significant factor attributable to COVID. The second one you've mentioned is the increase in the size of container ships. Now 20,000 TEU uh, ships are not uncommon now. The Ever Givens, the ship that was uh, stranded in the Panama Canal, Tyler, is a thousand foot long vessel, 20,000 containers, big ships. Um, I've often wondered about the capacity of ports to handle uh, ships of that size, if it is more efficient to have larger ships with more containers coming in as a port operator, or does that mean dockage times go up? Does it? How does it affect the schedule? What is, if you could, could you explain a little bit more 
about how the change in ship design or the increases in containers in particular has affected the efficiency of port offloading and, uh, and export operations? Sure. So I think when, uh, you know, it's, it's a good question when, when these vessels starting getting so large. And I think some of our industry's shortcomings are is that we often operate in our own silos, right? So you have these, these ocean carriers that are building these huge ships, but they're not really talking to the ports. And so all of a sudden you need 50 feet of water, right? And you need, uh, and you need to be able to what you would normally handle maybe with, um, uh, you know, would have taken you f- five days to unload. Now you're going to offload, say, in 24 hours. So all of a sudden you're going to have all of this cargo coming out at one time rather than kind of coming out over the week. And what does that do to those last mile roadways, right? That's where you start building in all these traffic and congestion issues. Um, so that's been something that has been part of the infrastructure hmm. advocacy of the ports and that we really need more money for last mile funding, right? So that we have the right infrastructure in place to support the surge in cargo. That's a little bit different now than it was before. Huh. Um, that's a little bit kind of different than the challenges today. And so we're always trying to catch up with what's happening in the industry. And I, you know, it's interesting. I just uh, spoke at a, a, a congressional hearing and I was on a panel and it was regarding, you know, infrastructure and green infrastructure and electrification and decarbonization and, right. and what and I was on this panel with an ocean carrier and they were talking about biofuels. And I was like, wow, that's really interesting. So where are you going to fuel that thing in the United States? Right. It's it's we all kind of get in this this silo of, you know, we, we need to do better as an industry. If, if ocean carriers are going one direction, let's make sure that the system's prepared for that direction. And I mm. think that's where we could do a little better as a universe of stakeholders in our industry. I see. So yeah. would, is it fair to say that we're in this, this transition phase between uh, ships that were of, of smaller capacity, a different demand curve on imported goods, that, that, that has suddenly changed, it seems. And it's not that sudden, I think, in terms of how the ships are different and larger in size and all of that. That's been occurring for ships a period of time. Ships have been getting bigger now for... Yeah, yeah the Panama yeah, Since World War II, I mean... Yeah. And the... I mean, I just... I'm go, just going through... Yeah. You know, Peter, you know I love naval architecture. Yeah. I don't know. I'm going to call this naval architecture, even though we're talking about container ships and cargo vessels, but... The trend has been, I can say definitively, bigger, 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 bigger. Yeah. And of course, as you mentioned, the channel depths need to increase. We're talking about in the Port of Corpus Christi down here on the Texas coast, uh, where they're really expanding into liquefied natural gas exports, uh, channel depths in excess of 70 feet now, uh, almost 80 uh, to handle ships of, of just increasing size. So I would imagine, Kristen, from a port management standpoint, you're a, a bit of a victim of the circumstance. Uh, you don't drive the ship design changes or the export market or export or import demand. But here you are having to field the ball, essentially, as these curves are oh, yeah, Always on defense. You know, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's like the be. baseball yeah. analogy. That's great. Uh, that's a good way of putting it. It's sort of interesting. Um, you know, what really drives those decisions ultimately is, right, what's going to be cost effective in the bottom line. Now, here at Port of Winemi, we can't handle any vessel near the size of those 20, 20, 
uh, thousand TEUs, we can handle uh, vessels, you know, in the neighborhood of 2,500 TEUs. Wow. So um, we're the small guy. And I, I, this is how I, the analogy I like to use on this is that I consider these large ocean carrier vessels the bus. So you want to get on the bus, you get a cheap fare, right? But if you get in a taxi, you get more direct service and you might pay a premium for it, but you may save money. Okay. Um, on other ends of the supply chain, right? Um, because you're getting to market faster, um, you're going to save money because you're not in a congested area. You get your, your product out to market faster. So, you know, you may for one that one piece of the supply chain have to pay some premium um, because you're on the limo or the taxi. Um, but in this time when you're seeing all this congestion, that might make sense. Be, be, be a be um, a taxi is, guy. Time is money. Be a limo guy, right? Yeah. That's you know, time that's my money. attitude. Be, be the guy that, you know, your time is more valuable. I don't know. I'm, well, I'm pro-public transportation, uh, too, uh, I just am saying. I, I want to ask, uh, the you guys are just up the coast from uh, uh, Port of Long Beach in L.A., as you mentioned, that uh, imports 40% incredible of the imported. Uh, just an incredible and, amount. How has how has the port of Wainimi's uh, operations changed? To are, are you are you a spillover port now for folks who would normally have gone into L.A. Long Beach? Uh, are your operations changing? Are your customer bases shifting to take advantage of the niche port, the Lemo excess faster service uh, approach that you have? How how has the backlog affected your operations and has it created new opportunities or new risks for you? Sure, good question. I guess I'll, I'll, I'll just back up a little bit. You know, I, I look at, um, I always call LA and Long Beach, I know uh, Gene and Mario well, I call them my big brothers up there or down there, excuse me. Um, um, we are in California, there are 11 deep water ports and we really are a system of ports, right? And clearly um, the scale of what happens in the San Pedro ports isn't gonna happen here in Port Winnemi, but we have a place in, in the system, if you will, and we've handled niche cargoes primarily in the agricultural um, segment and in the automotive segment. And then we handle a lot of general cargo, high and heavy cargo, which is tractors and big turbines and yachts and things of that nature. Um, and liquid fertilizer. And so that's, you know, you can't stack cars. So, you know, in those larger ports, they are really large container operations. So we've played a role in supporting different segments of the economy um, in our niche markets. And that's how we've been successful and not really necessarily competitors. And, you know, you want to see the whole system of ports working well, not being sick, because you don't all of a sudden want to see, you know, a port that's starving for cargo, try and steal cargo from another port, you know. But now, right, it's quite the opposite. Um, you're seeing um, all of this cargo come in through the big ports. And when it makes sense, I don't think uh, Gene and Mario would have any problem diverting a ship here to help things out a little bit if it made sense. Um, but um, to answer your question, it is an opportunity for the Port of Winnemi because um, we are seeing an, a, a huge tick up in volume. and. If you'll let me, <laughs> I, I'll, Please do. you know, we're, uh, we're, the port of Winnemi is a little bit different. We act more like an operating port than a landlord port. We're pretty small. We're 120 acres, right? And so we run the throughput of cargo here rather than serve as like a private terminal. So when a container box gets off a ship in Winnemi, it doesn't sit here and gets to stay at the port. It will move through our gate and it's going to go to a private terminal off port. So 
let me explain with Del Monte or, or say Chiquita, they bring bananas in, pineapples, melons, and those sorts of commodities. They go in a container and they'll go to their distribution facilities outside the gate and they get inspected there. Our cars, uh, you know, we have another customer, Sealand, Mayor Sealand, when their containers get off, same thing. It gets offloaded and then that box will run down the street and it gets inspected off port. So in other words, we're not having a choke point at the gate for all these containers after they get inspected to race out into the market. They kind of get here, they go. And if you look at our gate, it's completely fluid and we've always been 24 seven. So even though we're small, our terminals are off port and they're in private holdings. So it's a different business model. It's just really different. Even with the cars, the cars come off the ship by longshoremen, they get parked and then vans of people come down, pick them up and they're driven a mile down the street to a 65 acre private terminal off port. So we have all this real estate property Hmm. off port supporting our operations that is creating no congestion at our gate. I love it. I I can see the advantage. Um, And this is one of the things that I'm reading about in Long Beach and other ports around the country where they're storing containers on site, mountains and mountains of terminals of of containers within the port land area. And in your case, off the ship into the port and then out to private terminal spaces outside the port property, which gives you multiple avenues of distribution. I've got to think it's more efficient, uh, quicker and no massive storage within the port property to get tied up in. Um, I got right. think unless those facilities start backing up, we'll hold the cargo for them. But the idea is to get it out as quickly as possible. Yeah. Let me ask you two things. Um, we have been reading about uh, the incredible profitability in ocean shipping right now in uh, major shipping lines, as you said. Uh, more profitable in the last six months to 12 months than they have been in several previous years. And it's, uh, there's a bit of a backlash I'm reading about uh, in, the, uh, in the market and with the, uh, the, the importers who are having to pay these incredibly high fees now to move products in and out of America. Um, can you comment on, on, do you think there is anything in the shipping industry that is being uh, I don't know if I want to say exploited or or take an unfair advantage, or is this this the supply and demand of the marketplace driving the cost so high? Um, that that's a good question. I mean, I would say that um, the ocean carrier would probably argue it's their turn because the rates were so long for because for, for were so low for so long that they feel that you know they have to make up for lost time and i think they ultimately what's going to happen here is the importers are going to gripe but ultimately they're going to pass that cost on to the us consumer and that may exaggerate some of the inflationary impacts that we're seeing here you know in terms of goods really the prices skyrocketing right you know so i i would argue i don't see them taking any other recourse there's a lot of you know dialogues and petitions to the M- at the federal maritime commission to see what they can do with demerge fees and, and and things like that but ultimately i think the ocean carriers are going to try and make a buck right now because they were hurting for so long and you know uh kristen and i don't know if this is too avant-garde uh i i don't know maybe when you get together with the other port directors uh, and after the meeting, you go out to a pub and let let just let it loose. But it seems as though uh, with COVID, 
which is a global virus. It really exposed and showed us just how interconnected the modern world is, how mm-hmm. fast the virus spread. Of course, on the American shoreline, we are always thinking about uh, climate change. And that's, of course, a global problem as well. Uh, and uh, across all of this, it seems that our, our the old economic model that I kind of grew up with myself um, seems to be shifting a little bit. Um, and one of the things that I think about f- with, with the Port of Wainimi, which is, a, as you say, a smaller port, is the Jones Act. <laughs> um, and, you know, I think about, man, you know, it, it, transporting things on water is so much more efficient oftentimes than transporting them on land. For example, if you needed to get something from particularly a large quantity of things from Southern California to Northern California, that'd be great. However, uh, I understand that there are requirements with the Jones Act to have a U.S. made ship and a U.S. crew that could really drive the costs up. But but I could also see a, a small port like you, these types of operations kind of domestic, you know, um, back and forths being uh, a, 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 an important part of business or, or a potential new uh type of business with with more regional uh, distribution of goods and stuff. Um, is that something that, am I crazy? Is that something that you th- you think about? And what are your thoughts on that? Well, no, it's a great point. We, we are in Port Winnie. We have been designated as a, um, a what do we call it? A, a hub on the Marine Highway 5. So we are definitely exploring opportunities around short sea shipping. The Jones Act, I don't know, is, you know, it's interesting, depends who you talk to. But yeah, the cost of building a ship in this country is 75% more than building it even in Europe. Um, so that causes some, some challenges crazy. there. What? But some of the cost issues really, too, are in that you have, you when you move from one port to another to offload cargo, you have a double handling and so there, there's a lot of, I think, pieces to this that would have to come together. I mean, from a, just a logical standpoint, shipping is a lot cleaner and it could be a lot faster and you could move barge down um, some goods from um, L.A. Long Beach here for sure. And we would entertain that business. I guess when I say I'm small, though, I'm going to I'm going to maybe say that, you know, we're not hurting for cargo. <laughs> you know, hey, you're and, not that small. We, we uh we have a lot going on right now. Um, and even pre-cargo, I think our business is up 33% since 2012. Our revenue has grown about 70%. And what's happening is I think there's a lot more visibility in some of these more, if you want to call us a boutique or niche port, because of the optimization of getting your goods to market faster. And we've brought in some new liner services. And even during this COVID period, and I didn't quite explain it, you know, because uh, I got caught up in, the, in a little bit more in the supply chain issues, but we are seeing a lot more volumes come through here. And I think they're going to be sticky because of the positive experience mm-hmm. these customers are having. So during the supply chain crisis, you know, some things that are happening is, you know, our, our, our container businesses in southbound lanes down to Latin America. And a, a vessel may come out of Asia, one of the big boys, right, big girls, come across the ocean, drop, uh, come there, dump a container on a smaller ship coming here. We call that transshipping. And now we're seeing all these new cargos come up that we've never seen before, electronics, hmm. furniture, apparel. We're seeing direct charters come here directly from Asia. 
And then we're finding some of our customers that say have 1500 containers on their ship and normally would have gone on to uh, LA and Long Beach, or excuse me, 1500 TUs would have gone on later to LA or Long Beach or Oakland or beyond or Seattle. And, and because of supply chain, because you know what, we're all just going to dump them here in Winnie. Hmm. So, um, and then the shippers kind of liking that. And so now some of these bigger ocean carrier companies, I won't name brands, are all knocking on our door and either want to charter slots on our existing customers or they want to charter their own ships here. And the one thing we can do um, is we can decide because we we're more of an operating port, we can decide what can and cannot work so that we don't become the port just stacking up containers, right? And now all of a sudden you have no bananas in, in 15 states. Well, perishable goods and yeah. you guys are a yeah. lot in the fruit fruit and uh, vegetable business in that port and uh, speed girl. speed is a vest, speed is yeah, but it's a good question though. Short sea shipping would be a great thing. It would be a great thing for our country, but it's just complicated from things that you mentioned, the Jones Act and the cost of moving cargo that way may need some subsidies. And that's not really how you can move things in the supply chain or things just cost more money. And we have to accept that because it's a greener way of moving freight. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm more just kind of spitballing way off into the future that uh, it seems as though this super, uh, Peter, you would say finely tuned, very finely tuned, yeah. like a carburetor that's giving just the right amount, like a race car carburetor. Yeah. And the truth is, first of all, I think what we've seen is some resiliency problems with that. The race car is great on the racetrack running yep. at those speeds, If you, but the minute you shake it up a little bit, take her off road, uh, yep. you know, you don't know what you're getting so much. So. Uh, I like the idea of more redundancy in the system and also the idea of adding that low, that smaller vessel being yeah. able to utilize these smaller. I, I don't mean to say small as a as a denigrating thing. It's just it's not the port of Long Beach. It's not oh, the, the, sure. the biggest yeah. ships. But I do think that there is a really bright future for ports like that. And, and I have to say from a purely uh, in like a. Uh, you know, the, the environmentalist in me that's looking at it from an aerial photograph, I prefer to see a smaller port. I got to be honest with you. Looking at a big, huge, massive, you know, the port of L.A. is, uh, I don't know, it's just more unnatural to me. I prefer a small one. <laughs> well, you know, it's, 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 it's yeah, you know. The, those big ports too, they're starting to look now at the, at the Winimi model. I think they have been for a long time. And how do you bring inland, even as far as Bakerfields, these inland ports? So you just get cargo, cargo out of those big complexes and out into areas where are less, you know, have less congestion challenges, and then you can get distribution from there. Um, so it's. It's, it's, you know, every, I would say, I guess from my perspective, every port has a place, right? And, you know, our place is what it is in our niche and industries, but we're excited to see an emergence of, yeah, that discussion around resiliency. We couldn't put, you know, a huge dent in what's happening in LA and Long Beach, and you're correct. I mean, I'm not, I'm not upset by the word small in perspective to them, but it, it, you know, we can though help and that, and I think a lot of Winimis can help. Um, these smaller niche ports, whether it's San Diego and Portland and in other areas in the Pacific Northwest that we can, you know, if we can get some of the, the cargo into the marketplace to help kind of shake up what's happening in the congestion, I think it would be a systematically good thing. Mm. Yeah. Well, I, it, it, yeah. it does seem like the, the, that the future is bright in the port. The opportunities are, are improving. Um, 
I would like to talk about, if you don't mind, shift the conversation a little bit to no, the November 16th uh, action by the Oxnard Harbor District Commissioners, I guess your commissions for the Port of Wainimi, adopting a resolution to demonstrate the commitment to decarbonizing port operations. Very cool. And I'll say, Tyler, that in the uh, infrastructure bill that was just passed, there's hundreds of millions of dollars set aside for decarbonization activities in ports, particularly. Um, Talk to us about what decarbonization means in a port um, and how you intend to approach that issue and fulfill the commitment uh, that the port uh, district commissioners uh, adopted here in November. Sure. Hey, look, the ports in in California have really been leaders in terms of moving forward with electrification and um, and words around zero emission. Like they're not four letter words to us, decarbonization. It's actually something we embrace and we're excited to um, make part of our agenda. Um, the, The ports of California are already plugging in refrigerated cargo ships then. We're doing that here. So when our our container ships come, they plug in and there's zero emission at ports. So we are, have, we've begun this process and we're ready to go all in and make our ports 100% zero emission. So decarbonization is the word we use as opposed to say electrification um, in the sense you don't really know what the fuel mix might be. There's a lot of opportunities out there. It could be hydrogen, it could be ammonia. There's a lot of different discussions right. as to what the right tech is, but that what my board and our leadership is demonstrating is that we're committed to make it happen. And we, um, yeah, we just got a $200,000 grant from the California Energy Commission to build our blueprint to decarbonization. And so we'll be working with the state on how, what that energy mix is that's right for the port of Wanimi and how we get there. We don't want to go out there and say, hey, 2035 will be all zero emission because yeah. we don't know. It's we want to give yeah, for we want to give a, a true picture of how we're going to do it. So if we have a power plant di- down the street that can only produce so much power, we don't want to create a false story out there that all of a sudden they're going to have enough power to electrify our, our full facility, right? We want to say, okay, this is what needs to happen. We're going to need to upgrade this plant. And then, um, and, and this is the pathway to get that done. And then this is the cost. So, um, we're excited. We're excited to go after this infrastructure funding and, you know, it's, it's, it, it's, it's an expensive endeavor, I think, to electrify our ports in the neighborhood of $30 million, um, a, a price tag that doesn't scare us. Um, we'll, we'll find a way to get it done. And then we're going to have to work with the energy providers, too, to make sure all that infrastructure is in place to support a decarbonized network. Well, and I suppose my, my next question is somewhat related in that it has to do with um, offshore wind. And uh, this, I, I think, you know, I'm interested in both your connections back east uh, because we know that there is a lot going on. And Peter and I have been kind of forecasting that there would be a huge, with all of this construction, that the ports of the Northeast would uh, really uh, find some new opportunities here. And of course, I'm wondering out in California, there are strong indications that uh, there will be offshore wind in the mix here, uh, I think maybe within the next 10 years even. Yeah, I think that's right. <clears throat> and uh, I am, I'm interested to know if uh, that's something that the Port of Wainimi might be getting in on. 
So Peter and Tyler, you guys have done your homework, huh? <laughs> um, yeah. So when I was back in New Bedford, um, we were hoping to become the port to support what the time was called Cape Wind, and that didn't come to fruition. But we mm. did build a terminal that had the in, the, the structural integrity to support the heavy components that are affiliated with the deployment and development of offshore wind complexes. And now I, I uh, my friends back in New Bedford send me articles and things are starting to happen there and they are doing some pilot projects and I understand that it has a new name, but they'll be developing the, the mm-hmm. off the coast of Nantucket with the wind farms. And so they were a little ahead, but the similar process is happening here on our coast now where they're going to start you know, putting bids out for real estate on the ocean floor for the um, uh, installation of these these wind farms. They're different out here. Um, they're mm-hmm. um, going to be floating systems yep. and as opposed to what they're building on the East Coast. But I think all eyes are on ports and how we're going to help support, you know, these developments. And I think there's a commitment at the administration and our, you know, Governor Newsom. And I think there's, you know, with all the discussions at the federal level, um, around uh, climate change and whatnot, that there's going to be a push to make this happen. And, you know, we're going to have to, again, it's this uh, assess and invest and figure out what are the primers that are going to make it all happen. The Port of Wanimi is happy to help. Um, there's a lot of requirements behind developing these facilities. You need about 80 acres and we're 120 acres, but um, we are a shared port. Yeah, we're, we're a good fit, right, for to trim us down. But we do share our harbor with the Navy. And as you know, we're partnering with them on other fronts. And so if infrastructure can money can go into the Navy to make them more robust and support their military missions, and at the same time, they can help build um, wind farms, that might be something to talk about. So right. I think Winnie is going to be a big part of the conversation. It's it's exciting. I think this particular uh, development on the American shoreline, the newest industry we're seeing uh, unfold around the country. Uh, yeah, you're right, and that that it's interesting that in your experience in New Bedford that you uh, went through the process of upgrading a port facility for uh, offshore wind. The Vineyard Wind Project is the 30 yeah. megawatt project that's currently been approved uh, by the by the federal government. Many many other projects. Uh, are on the drawing board, including uh, on the West Coast. So uh, it is exciting to see these uh, developments occur. I've been reading a little bit, Tyler, when it comes to California wind about the Port of Humboldt, which is one of the target areas for uh, uh, investment in wind infrastructure in that portion of the Northern California coast. So as the California Port Association, uh, one of the leaders, I would imagine, Kristen, uh, port directors all along the uh, west coast of the United States have their eye on this emerging business. I sure do, and particularly Humboldt. I was just on a panel with the port director there recently, and they're really excited because it's an opportunity to really reinvent themselves okay. and create economic stimulus. And I think there's a lot of energy um, in their community that would support that, you know, uh, that opportunity for them. And I think that, you know, because of the the um, infrastructure requisite to these things in these 80 acres, it's, you know, you, they're even talking about building ports, but that's a hard thing to do in the world we live with in permits and, and right. the fill, all the things affiliated with building a port. But it will be an interesting conversation, um, and I think Humboldt's going to have a big place in this, and I think the other ports are going to see how we can participate and support this emerging technology. Well, it's sure. a very chill area, the Humboldt yeah. uh, Part of the Northern California coast. Uh, I wanted to ask you a little bit about just a little bit more detail on the decarbonization, what that means. You mentioned 
the electrification of the ports and uh, and and I understand not being specific about exactly how the fuel mix would be to do that but uh, when a large ship is in dock and it's uh, refrigerated cargo like bananas and produce they have to keep damn refrigerators running and they're usually running the engines on the ship to do that and decarbonization is to plug the ship in and provide electrical power from shore so you don't have to run the engines on board the ship and emit this rather dirty uh, emissions that come out of these ships. Uh, do you foresee that being possible? Uh, you mentioned $30 million, not a number that you're afraid of as the port director and your port commissioners, but um, does it seem feasible to pull that off and to, and to electrify not only the ships in dock, but also the cranes and the other equipment that you use to shuttle cargo in and around the port? Can you, can you get, be a little bit more specific? Yeah, so so right now we plug in that the, you're exactly right, the refrigerated cargo ships, and they don't have to run their diesel auxiliary engines now when they're in port. They can use the electric power, and so that keeps them zero emission at birth. But that's a great point. It's it kind of goes back to the you know the testimony I was referring to when you know I, I delivered to Congress is that you really need to assess and invest. And, and understand what the needs are, especially if we're trying to do this across all goods movement. So I know by way of example that our utility plant needs about a $60 million upgrade to electrify our other terminal here, our north terminal, right? So it's, it's, those are where some of these challenges come in. And you have to make sure that everyone's talking to again. It's like this silo issue I was discussing earlier in our industry, right? You need to make sure that the power plants and utility companies are speaking with the energy commissions in the state and the air quality regulators and the economic teams are all in a room together saying, okay, we want to go forward with this, but this is going to be the pull on the grid. And then this is going to be the cost. And this is, you know, and then you all get together and you figure out where the money's going to come from right. and then you move forward. So, wow. um, it's, it's complicated, but we've done it. You know, we've done it here in California. We're plugging our ships in and, um, you know, the, the workforce likes it. No one wants to inhale diesel when they're working on a day-to-day basis. So right. it's important. Uh, it's a very important agenda. Um, and, I, and I think that, you know, there's always, you know, I think these conversations, I think you said it earlier, are becoming more and more global. So hopefully there'll be more and more technology because another interesting piece of all this is that there's been only one manufacturer of this equipment for Shoreside Power. Hmm. This company is named Cavitech. So if we go down, we're all fighting for the same mechanic. Wow. And especially then during COVID, some of these, you know, mechanics live in Denmark and they can't get here. So... Um, wow. It's creating, you know, we need more players in, in opportunity, the, in the ladies economy. and gentlemen. Yeah, yeah we, come on. Sure. That, I, I'm sorry, I wasn't going to say anything else, but uh, no. what what strikes me, Peter, about this conversation and um, is the bright future that this port has. This is a working waterfront space. Yeah. Uh, it there will be blue collar jobs associated with this. It has the, it's greening up. And there's new, there's future, there's future opportunities here. How many opportunity zones like that exist in this country? Pretty cool. I really, it gets me excited. Yeah, it does. And having someone as a port director with the environmental ethic and background that Kristen has, this is like, you're the perfect port director uh, in America right now. This is who we need running the show. 
Uh, it's just interesting, and I think I want the public to understand a little bit here, is when you're talking about decarbonization of the port, you're, you're talking about the, the power producers in your region, the power companies who operate the, uh, you know, the turbines and the, and the gas tur- turbines and all of the things that produce electricity. That is not in the port's purview to simply dictate that additional electrical capacity is going to be built into the grid system in Southern California to do this. And it does require this intensive coordination and de-siloing of thinking, mm-hmm. uh, which I think is what makes port operations so fascinating is how it cuts across every aspect of, of the coastal economy and what's the, the involved. Uh, just seems and like the a, whole economy, like the port penetrates. That's one of the things that I'm again, I'm sorry, but the the port is a fascinating place on the American shoreline yeah. because it is the place that we kind of think of not being the American shoreline because it penetrates everywhere. It literally is a hub to the whole world, to the heartland, yeah. to the to, to the whole damn world. But it is a fixture on the American shoreline. It's a very important one. And I'm really uh, glad we had this opportunity to, to learn more about it. Well, it seems like a fantastic uh, job, Kristen. I just have to ask you, uh, uh, looking over your tenure, I guess you've been at the port since 2012. Uh, can you reflect a little bit about your tenure over almost the last 10 years now? Uh, what has been the most surprising or interesting uh, development in your professional life in this uh, working at the Port of Wainimi? You know what I find? I mean, first of all, you guys are going to make me blush. I think there's a great team of individuals out there that are making this all happen. It's not uh, – there's a lot of port directors and a lot of stakeholders that are, are – changing the face of our industry and hopefully for the better and creating that appreciation for the need to really go green and, and make a difference and create jobs for, you know, and, and, and bring up the people of our communities. It's It's been long overdue. So that's exciting. But um, in terms of like what I find in, in my industry is, is, yeah, or for me, what's been really interesting is just how you can impact a community or a person and do something better that shapes somebody's future and i'll just give a small example but to me it's a big one so we have a global trade and logistics class here with the youth in our community our high school students it goes about 12 weeks and um they come in here and they get a, a education from someone that works at the port whether it's someone from one of our big customers or a customs official or an attorney or an accountant or who whatever it may be they learn some career track affiliated with the maritime industry and then we put we get around 25 uh, s- students that participate in this program and then the uh, excelling students get paid internships here and what's been particularly cool is to watch a lot of these students go on to study in international trade and build up careers and, and become successful and it's like wow you influenced an individual and then you can look at how maybe you make a change more from an industry standpoint. We started a cold treatment program here, we're a long story, but you can plug blueberries in now when you're here and you weren't Mm. able to do that before. What does that mean? You're not shipping or trucking 800 trucks now across our country from Philadelphia. They're actually bringing a clean ship in here and and offloading those blueberries. So you're affecting a positive change. And to me, that's what it's all about doing more good to the extent I can make some small imprint of, of making affecting positive change. That's what makes it that's what makes it exciting and rewarding and what gets you up every day, you know, changing a life, changing, you know, making something a little bit better. 
It sounds fantastic, Kristen. We can't thank you enough for the work that you're doing and all of the port directors around the country. I'm a fan of small ports and have worked with small ports in Texas. And uh, there is nothing better than a well-run small port. They're just really important economically. These niche markets are very key, makes the system all work together. Uh, so thank you very much for, for what you're doing, Kristen. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, it is Kristen Dikas. She is the port director and CEO of the Port of Wainimi in Ventura County, California, and one of the great port directors on the American Shoreline. Uh, Kristen, thank you so much for spending time with our listeners on the American Shoreline hey, podcast. Hey, hey, thanks for having me, and thanks for doing what you do, um, both you, Peter, and Tyler, and getting out there and and. and uh, learning about what's going on in the coast and, and putting the good word out there. You do great work. We appreciate it. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Beaches of sand, in the hotels, my father's and mine was you. Birds on the lawn, sunlight at dawn, singing mama now. Take one, but I'm